Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We are going to look at a particular church, the Church of Antioch in Syria. And that church has been a model for us in the way we do missions for many years. Whether you know that or not, it's, it's been in the back of Mary's and my heart. Uh, we've talked about it. And you ha- you're going to watch, as you read the scriptures, some of the things that you've lived out where it comes from. But as we see it afresh, I think it just challenges us more deeply. The, the theme I'm getting in my heart this Christmas, this, this Advent season, is freely you've received, freely give. We have hope, don't we? We're grateful for that, aren't we? But we live among so many people that do not. They have no hope. And it is not okay for us to simply hold our hope and be grateful for it and live in a world where people are dying without hope. We, we need to be missionaries. We need to have the kind of heart that's, that's, that's focused on sharing what we have, giving it to others. We need to have that orientation to the way we think. This, these men and women did. They had it deep in them. And we're going to let them challenge us. That as we go into this Advent season, it'll, we'll go in it not only celebrating what we have, but passionately longing to carry that to others. Holy Spirit, open the word. Open the word. Open our hearts to the word. We need to hear you, not me. We need your life. Speak to us. Challenge us. Love us. Grow us. We would be disciples of Jesus Christ. Come now, we ask in your name. Amen. All right. I'll start at uh, verse 26, Acts 14. This is the end of the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas, actually John Mark started out with them. Paul and Barnabas headed out in the first place they went from, they left Syria and Antioch, Antioch and Syria, and they went to Cyprus. They ministered to the churches across that island, then set, actually led the, the, the Roman proconsul to Christ. I think he said, would you go to my hometown? or where my parents are, I'm not sure, because we found his name up there in Pisidian Antioch. And they went right up to the coast of, uh, southern coast of Turkey uh, and went through a mountain range. I've told you how bad it was. Well, I just saw a picture of it uh, from, the, from the harbor. It looks like the Rocky Mountains. It, um, it, is a, it is a wall, a snow-capped wall of mountains that, that they passed through to get to Pisidian Antioch. They went through those various churches, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Those are the Galatian churches. The letter to Galatians is to these churches that we have just been seeing. Then Paul, after all that they went through in those, those cities, turned around and went right back through those churches, appointing elders, preparing them, and telling them this, through many tribulations you'll enter the kingdom of God. Becoming a Christian gets you in trouble. Yeah, I was going to say, hey, turn to your neighbor, but don't, don't tell them that. They, they already know. 
it, it, it does, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's blessing, but it also invites trouble. You, you entered a spiritual war. So he's preparing them, and then they head back, and they go, to the, they go to the coast, get on a ship, and sail to Antioch. That's where we're picking them up. They're come, they've come home now, back to their sending church, and they report to them. I'll start at verse, um, I'll start at verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them. That's the way it translates it. They, literally, they placed beside. I mean, the word means to place beside. They placed, they placed them beside the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. That's the coastal plain there, uh, just between the mountains and the sea. And when they spoke the word, they spoke the word in Perga, capital city they had not spoken on on the way in they passed through it quickly they went down to Atalia which is the harbor and from there they sailed to Antioch from which they had been again commended or placed beside the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished and when they had arrived and gathered the church together they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time with the disciples. Would you say that? They spent a long time. Yeah, I'll tell you how it's actually, well, the, the actual wording of it. Okay, so the, here they go. They've gone, all, they've gone out, and now they come back to their sending church. They report, and they spend a long time. The Antioch church became the center of outreach to the Gentiles. They had successfully put behind them the issue of fellowship between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And by this point in time, probably 15 years after Pentecost, they were aggressively moving forward to evangelize Jews and Gentiles in other regions. They became a home base for missionaries who went all over the world. Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, Silas, Titus, and undoubtedly many more fanned out from that great metropolitan city, carrying Christ to anyone who would listen. We have much to learn from them. Their fruitfulness as a mission church was not an accident. There was a careful process behind the way they did things. And if we look closely, they will teach us how to do the same. We, along with much of the church of Jesus Christ around the world, are reflecting on the fact that God loved us so much that he sent his son to us as a missionary. Jesus left the glories of heaven to become one of us, a human, and to die for us on a cross. God didn't abandon us to our sin and confusion. He sent someone to rescue us. And then after we have become his, he asks us to become like him, which of course means we too will become missionaries. We too will love sinful, confused people so much we will go after them to restore them. After all, missionaries don't sit and wait. Missionaries get up and go. Would you read that last wonderful statement I wrote there? After all, missionaries don't sit and wait. Missionaries get up and go. How many of you are missionary? Yeah, well, you're going to be by the time this sermon's done. So just buckle your seatbelts. Amen. Paul and Barnabas have now completed their first missionary journey. They are returning to Antioch, from which they were committed to to the grace of God for the work to which they accomplished, fulfilled. The whole church assembled to hear the report of what God had done on their missionary journey. 
Undoubtedly, they told stories of miracles and people who came to Christ along with descriptions of the persecutions they faced and how the Lord rescued them out of them all. But there would have been one silent testimony in those meetings that no one could ignore. The scars all over Paul. They'd sent out a man who'd been whole in his body and now received back a man who'd been stoned. And while they must have rejoiced in the glorious reports of how God opened a door of faith to the nations, the sobering cost of opening that door stood in front of them. Luke concludes by saying, they wore away not a little time with the disciples. Don't you love the way the Greek says it? They wore away not a little time with the disciples. Though he doesn't tell us how long this was, these missionaries would have needed time to heal physically and emotionally from the hardships they had endured. We celebrate so much Paul's mission work, don't we? The success of it, the miracles. We love to focus on those things. And they're all there. And I don't, it doesn't even, you know, he would have talked about persecutions. Who knows what he would have said. But they're standing in front of them as a man who has been formally executed in one of the cities. And in a brutal way. There's simply no getting away from the fact. Later on, Paul will refer to his scars. I mean, the man is scarred and I actually think he comes away from this event damaged in some way. He, 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 is, he, is, he says to, to the Galatians later on, he'll write to them and he says, I don't want anybody to trouble me further. Because he says, I bear in my body the brand marks, the stigmata, the scars of Christ. And he does too. He's covered. You know, I, I'm going to tell you one of my heresies, and, and you just you get mine regularly. So, in fact, you're all by now heretics. So, um, but this is this is I, I think this this is where this happened. In Second Corinthians chapter 12, there's a, there's an there's an odd reference. Paul has just gone through a list of all of the things he suffered, including once stoned, and he mentions what's happened right here. And then he says, I know a man 14 years ago. And by my calculations, that's right, right on time. I know a man 14 years ago. He said, whether in the body or in spirit, I don't know. Meaning, whether dead or alive, I don't know. He says, I, that man, whom, I said, I won't boast in myself, but I'll boast in that man. And he says, that man went and saw into the third heaven, whether in the body, again, he'll say, or in spirit, I don't know. Do you know what the third heaven is? The first heaven is the, is the sky that you see in the daytime. Second heaven is the sky you see at night. Stars, moons, all that stuff. Third heaven is the throne room of God. It is the spiritual heaven. It is that area. He says, and who is he referring to when he talks this way? He's talking about himself, and unquestionably. So he's, he's saying, but 14 years ago, and I don't know if I was dead or alive at the time. Why would you say that? I don't know if I was dead or alive at the time, but I saw, I went into heaven. And I heard words that I can't even, even speak. I heard things that I don't even understand. I believe that when Paul was taken there in, in Lystra and he was executed, I think they did it. I think they were good at it, and I think they killed him. They, you, you recall what that entailed, tying him up, pushing him down 
at least 18 feet uh, onto, the, onto the pavement and then standing above him and each one who's accusing him throwing a rock down on him until he's dead. They dragged his body out. He has been damaged. He's been wounded. He'll go on in that passage, if you recall, and say, and I was given a messenger of Satan. Remember this? I was given a messenger from Satan in my body. And he says, I implored the Lord three times to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Now, when you, when you get into circles where people are, are really pressing the faith issue, they have a hard time with this question of Paul having something wrong with him because the idea is if something's wrong with Paul, well, God won't heal any of us. I mean, it's kind of this all or nothing thing. And, and, and here Paul is saying, I, I died, I saw heaven. I've been, I've been there. And he says, but I was injured. And I asked, God three times to heal me and he said my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness my strength is made perfect therefore he says I will rejoice in my weakness he went on for another 20 years they, 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 had, to, they had to cut his head off to stop him but what I'm saying to you is mission work when you and I become missionaries, when we start stepping into the battle, we can celebrate all the wonderful parts of it, but there is a cost and a personal sacrifice that's involved. Any of you who've been in missions, you'll know that. You'll know the price you've paid, whether it be physical, whether it be emotional, whether, whether, whether it is a spiritual thing, you know the price you pay. There stood... Paul and Barnabas. And there stood a scarred man who's still healing. And he spent a long time there. I'll tell you why. Healing. He's restoring. I mean, you got to get your strength back. You don't, you don't go through that. The fact that he made it through the mission and did all that he did is simply a miraculous beyond words. But there is a human here too. There is a human. As we read Luke's account of Paul, Paul's missionary journeys, a pattern emerges. The Antioch church, first of all, selected their missionaries. You remember this? There in, in Acts chapter 13, you have these five leaders who are worshiping and fasting, seeking the mind of the Holy Spirit. And somewhere in there, there's a prophetic word someone has and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them. Remember this? And then it says they prayed and fasted some more and then laid their hands on them and the church sent them away. So there's a formal gathering of the church. There's a formal laying on of hands and a formal sending out by that Antioch church. Please notice they did missions in community. They didn't simply watch Paul and Barnabas go do a mission. Well, we're feeling led, we're going. This was something the church did. They laid hands on them. They set them apart and they covered them. And we'll talk about that. They used prayer, worship, and fasting to prepare themselves to hear from God. They relied on prophetic guidance and to show them who God was sending. We seek to do the same. We have mission training. 
We have applications. We have a missions committee. We have a policy. We don't just push people out the door. There's people who are being trained, being going through general mission training, going through their specific mission training. They're being, they're being evaluated and selected by a missions committee. All of that is going on so that when Northwest Church, when we as a family, when we send missionaries, we don't just watch someone go. We, we believe in you. We, we, we feel God has said go. And we stand as a people with you when you go. You don't go alone. You go as, as, as an extension of us. That's why we lay hands on you and we send you out carefully. Secondly, they sent missionaries. I've just said it. They prayed and fasted and then all together. Once they had chosen missionaries, they again prayed and fasted to spiritually prepare themselves to lay hands on them, to send them out. The focus of this prayer was to place the missionaries into the care of God's grace, their language, not mine, into the care of God's grace and to believe that he would accomplish his work through them. Don't you love that? They went back to Antioch from which they had been commended, committed into the grace of God. There's a people. I mean, and this church, by the way, this is, the estimates are like 25,000 people. You've got a huge church in Antioch. It's a big metropolitan city. And, 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 and Christianity is just roaring there. And so you've got this great church. And they have commended them, committed them into the grace of God's care. Hallelujah. They prayed for their missionaries. Any church that took such care to pray for those they sent out surely prayed for them while they were gone. They did things as a community and they did things as a, in a systematic, organized way. It's all through there. So in one way or another, they must have encouraged continual prayer for their missionaries while they were gone. We see this disciplined prayer in Paul's daily mention of his churches, his call to others to strive together with me in your prayers, and his urging that they devote themselves to prayer so that God will open up to us a door for the word. As a missionary, he counted on others to pray for his protection, for boldness to preach, and for the spiritual responsiveness of those to whom he was sent. Do you hear how strongly he relies on them to pray for him? In his places, he begs them. There are passages where Paul is just begging people, pray for me. Pray that I'll have boldness. Pray that a door will be open for me. Pray protection over me. I'm going into the lion's den, man. Pray for me. It wasn't, let me tell you something. And this is always happening. And somebody comes along and says, yeah, we're going to, and you know, outer whatever, you know, some remote part of the earth. And I'm thinking, really, with who? Oh, well, we're just some grouper. I'm going over there. and thinking, well, God be with you. I wouldn't do it. I think, I personally, when you step into the battle, there's a, there's a, there's a bell that goes off in hell. Ding, 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 ding. You know, shell's going on a mission. Ding, 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 ding. Get him. Only when I go, I got a family praying for me. When you go, when, when, when Antioch sent missionaries, when somebody went out, there were people standing with them. How do, we, how do we do that? I mean, I'm sure we could do it better, but we do it, don't we? The bookmarks? 
we, we get, every, we, I'll say, how many of you are willing to pray for these missionaries? Every day, you'll mention them once a day. And then whenever the Holy Spirit leads you, how many will stand in the gap and you'll be the phrase warriors? There's never a mission that goes out. There aren't hundreds of people who've signed up and said, I will pray for them. That We have been doing missions as, at Northwest. We've sent people all over the world, all over the Western United States, into all sorts of cultures and situations. Some of them, actually, we never, I never willingly put somebody in harm's way. I feel that's my responsibility as a pastor to never let that happen. I mean, you, but, but on any mission, it is what it is. And I know I personally have never been on a mission in which there wasn't some near miss. And I'll bet you haven't either. Because that bell went off and there's, there's, I mean, whether it's a, a near miss with an auto thing or construction situations. I mean, I have stuff that still will come to my mind. <laughs> you know, like, whoa, um, I, I went through a roof. And, and, and uh, the fact that I wasn't killed in the situation is amazing. I, I mean, I missed a big brick and a whole bit. Uh, but I had people praying for me. You say, well, if they prayed, they could have kept you up on the roof. No, no. <laughs> Since you, that thought went your, through your mind, let me explain how it is I went through the roof. Actually, uh, the Lord had said twice to me, go down, get the ladder, and go up the other way. It was a long way, and I'm tired. I don't want to. So finally, I thought, look, I'm going to walk across this board, but because he's warned me, I'll hang on to the gutter. What I didn't know is the board is made out of eucalyptus wood or something. It just, it just exploded under me, and the gutter's not attached. <laughs> somebody did know those things. And somebody had, so I went down because I'm stupid. <laughs> I'm stubborn. I don't listen. After two warnings, I got nobody to blame but me, just, just in case you thundered about that. The fact that he kept me alive. Was because you're praying for me. You, you see what I'm saying? If you're going to do this kind of work, and th this isn't just when you get on an airplane, when you do anything, when you step out anywhere, right here, the same dynamics take place. They were doing their ministry in community. They took mission work wherever it was seriously. Shall we do the same? Both of you, okay, uh, we'll all meet afterwards over in the prayer room and we'll talk about that. Can I try that again? How, yes, shall we do the same? Yes. Thank you very much. Hallelujah. They supported their missionaries. The words that Luke uses involve financial support. We know Paul refused to take offerings from those he evangelized. He didn't want anyone to think he cared about them only for their money. He often worked at tent making to support himself in cities where he stayed a while. But he did not refuse financial support from churches who wished to partner with him. Philippians, for example, he says, you're the only one that has remembered me. You're the only church that's remembered me in all of this. And he said, thank you for your generous gift. And then may, may God supply you according to his riches and glory. We quote that all the time. We don't quote the first part. The first part is that they had generously given to, the, to a missionary. One of the reasons he wrote to the Romans was to ask them to consider giving toward his upcoming mission to Spain and other regions around the Western Mediterranean. When we send missionaries, we as a church, for example, 
we budget 4% of our general income and we give it to missions. We also tithe. We also do other things. But we give 4% right up the top to missions. 2% we send to Foursquare Missions International. We're part of a family. We're part of a worldwide mission operation. We send them that. The other 2% goes to the Missions Council for the ministry of Northwest Church in our missions. So when you go and work on churches and you do various things, we go bringing financial. We don't ask people for them to pay money or anything else. We we take our own. All of that is because of, of giving. When you do get your cars washed, how many have had your cars washed and you didn't need to, but those young people were headed on a mission and you'll get it washed again. Amen. I have clean cars much of the year. Uh, Why? Because I want to support a mission. I'm supporting missionaries. I'm standing with them. They, They did too. They heard missionary reports. Hearing the reports of what God has done and celebrating is an essential part of the process because all who pray and give share equally in the spiritual fruit of the mission. Over and over again in Acts, we read about missionaries sharing what God had done and that this brought great joy to those who heard. I want you to go with me to 1 Samuel, just so you see it. I'm going to tell you the account. You know it. It's a familiar one. 1 Samuel chapter 30, and the passage I'm looking at is verse 20 through 25, but I'll just tell you, David, David has come back to his camp and found that the Amalekites have raided his camp. He's been out with his soldiers, his men, and he comes back, his wife, all their wives, their, their, their flocks, their children, Everything has been raided by the Amalekites and taken. A uh, lot of pressure on him. He, he actually inquires of the Lord. What shall I do and all that? And then the Lord goes with them and they capture the Amalekites. But on the way, I think there's 600 men in all. 200 of them get, are just too tired. They've been... Uh, in the the heat and the whole thing, and they've been marching and marching and marching, and two of them, 200 of them, can't go on any further. And so they stay by a riverbank with the baggage. Do you remember this story at all? The the rest of the men, probably 400 of them, go and they attack the Malachites, they, they win the battle, and they come back. And a group of those who went, when they come back, say, look, we did the fighting. These guys weren't with us. They don't get any of the spoil. They don't get anything of what we captured. They can have their wives and kids back. We don't want them anyway. But we will, we, 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 we take all the money, as it were. All the money's ours. And, and David responds this way. I want you to see it. It's, it's a very powerful lesson. I'll start at verse 22 there. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. And David said, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? In other words, 
you better follow me because they're not going to follow you anyway. For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. Say that with me, would you? As his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And then look what Samuel adds. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Here's the spiritual principle that's there. When we send somebody on a mission, we pray for them, we support them, we cover them while they're gone. When they come back, in God's eyes, we who've prayed and given are as much a part of the mission and receive the spiritual reward of that mission as much as those who went. Do you see that? It's very powerful. God thinks communally. He thinks of people. He, he is, yes, he knows the individual. Yes, he loves us as individuals, but he, there's a deep community thing in God. It's just the way he thinks. And so when a people pray and a people give and a people send out a missionary and cover them while they're gone and bring them back, they are sharing in the spiritual reward of that. They too went on a mission. They too are part of the fruit of what happened. So it's essential that you come back and report. It's essential that we hear the stories. It's essential that we hear what God did because you're telling us what we've done. You're telling us of the mission we've been on. You're letting us rejoice in what our prayers and our giving and our love for you has brought as well. You see that? They heal their missionaries. No one comes back the same way they leave. They are deepened and damaged. Virtually any mission, whether a person goes to the other side of the world or ministers to the community in which they live, has a price tag. There is an emotional and physical cost. Even when there are joyous reports of fruitfulness, missionaries will still need to come home, to rest, to be safe, to be loved, and to heal before other, another mission can be successfully undertaken. God never grows tired, but we do. And he understands our human frailty and brings us back to the community that sent us out. A missionary and their family might face re-entry. That is, that's the culture, culture shock. You, sometimes you go into these situations and then you come home and home looks totally different to you when you arrive. You know, you don't even like it here anymore. You know, it's, it's a whole struggle that you can go through. It's very real. Physical issues, lingering diseases, jet lag, uh, we had one of our young people come back from, from the Mexico mission uh, and we needed to pray and there were some of the medical people and all working with that person. What a great mission they had. But one of our young, one of our young ladies and probably others came back with a, paying a price. You, you see, there, there, there is a healing process to all of this. Look, one of the most vivid ones that I see is doesn't even leave... Uh, outside the state, Royal Family Kids Camp. I, I, every year, I take it on myself. It's one of my joys, actually. I, I come back, and I, on, on Friday, when they come back from the Royal Family Kids Camp, I greet, I hope, every one of them. I want to. And just thank them for what they've done. I know they've been a week with sleep deprivation and everything else. But what I, what I've, I see year in and year out are 
are people uh, who often have to pull aside and sob because in the course of this, they've opened their heart and fallen in love with a young person. And, and they know they have to now send that child back into who knows what. And sometimes they know what they're sending them back into. And that there's an agony to it. There's virtually not one of them that isn't weeping uh, in, in the whole process. Painful. And, and they recover for a while. There's a, there's like a, it's like a body blow they take. And there'll be a couple of weeks. My wife always goes, and it's, we go through it every year. I just know for a couple of weeks, she's just not going to want to talk much. She gets quiet and withdrawn. And then next year, they all gladly sign up again. That's missionaries. That's missionaries, people. That's the price you pay. And it's the fruit and reward you have. Things that, things that were said or done to them. Even loneliness for friends they've left behind. You often fall in love with people. It just tears your heart out to leave. Paul closed his letter to the Galatians by saying, From now on, let no one cause me tr trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks, the scars of Jesus. A missionary mindset. God is not a passive God. He goes after people, and we are not to be a passive people. We too must go after people. Love simply won't let us sit idly by and watch while others live and die without the Savior's Savior. Our hearts compel us to do what we can. Not everyone is called to get on a plane and go somewhere, but everyone is called to be a missionary. The only question that needs to be decided is where or who is my field. As an individual believer and as a church, we can approach everything we do this way, whether it's our children, youth, Seniors, a harvest party, Stephen's ministry, a life group, a summer team that's repairing another church building, royal family kids camp that's loving abused and neglected children, or a medical team flying to the uttermost parts of the earth. A missionary mindset has nothing to do with the size of a church or someone's personal wealth. Did you hear that? A missionary mindset has nothing to do with the size of a church or a person's personal wealth. It's an attitude, that, an approach to life. It's living aggressively. It's part of our spiritual DNA. It's people who realize that we've been called to selfless service. When everywhere Mary and I have gone, we, missions has been part of us. We actually both applied to a mission agency Years ago, we were turned down um, because I didn't have the training I needed at the time. But it's in us. Mary had wanted to be a missionary, and actually I had too. I thought I was going to be a missionary doctor was what I, was going to, I wanted to be, and she was going to be a missionary nurse, and we were headed to the wilds of probably Borneo. <laughs> but I don't credit to, to that because to me, this is just Christianity. I don't think... I don't think anybody can really be a Christian and not, not have a missionary heart. I just think it goes together because we have a missionary God. It's just the nature of things. But when we planted a church in, in, in temporary Arizona, we started in October. It was the first weekend of October. We started in Fuller Elementary School, put a little sign out there, some cold metal chairs and an American flag and a, and a music stand. That was my pulpit. And, and off we went. By Thanksgiving, we were already 
We had a van full of food and we were taking a Thanksgiving dinners down to a poor church in South Phoenix and, and caring for them. By Christmas, we had a van full uh, of, of, to- of toys all wrapped up, taking them to the children of those who worked in the flower fields there in South Phoenix. We had probably 20 to 30 people. You have some, um, some of your life groups are bigger than that. It doesn't matter what size you are. You do missions. It is a matter of, over. well, when we have a lot of money, I'll do something. You, you know, let me say something to that. I have heard over the years certain people say, and particularly it's kind of a young thing usually. He says, I- I'm going to get rich, and then I'm going to get so much money that I can sort of retire, and, and then I'm going to do I'll serve God. You know, it- it's kind of a win-win, isn't it? <laughs> You know, I'll be rich, and then I, you know, then I'll also serve God, and then I'll I'll, I'll give when I when I get rich. And I'm going to tell you something: I have never in my life, ever once, seen anyone do that. The ones that ever got rich just stayed there. Here's I have seen rich people come to Christ and serve God very effectively. So the rich isn't the issue. But the attitude that says, when I get rich, then I'll give. When I get rich, then I'll, then I'll start, and I can, I can retire from these things. Then I'll serve God. Here's how it really works. You start with whatever you have in your hand. You know what, I, you know what Isaiah says? He says, when you have a loaf of bread, divide your bread with the poor. Now you're a missionary. You just start with whatever's in your hand. And that little church in Tempe, Arizona, they didn't have any money. We were, we're, in a, we're, in a, we're in a, we're in a band room in a junior high by that, you know, no, we were still in elementary school then, I think. We had nothing. But we could, we could take, take an offering. We could wrap presents and we could get food and everybody buy an extra can or two and take it down to hungry people. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do this. It's your DNA. It's your attitude. It's who you are. It isn't the overflow of excess. It's missions. Selfless service. We are to go to someone, somewhere, not sit and watch others serve. Let me just, one more thing, forgive me. Uh, next week, I'll preach something really happy, like five steps to success. But, but <laughs> so, yeah, I do know how to do that stuff. You know. I'll wear different clothes. Anyway. Um, <laughs> stop right there. Um, it, it is not enough to simply give to missions. It is part of our Christian discipleship is that we get our hands dirty. You know, I, I, one, of, one of my key models for, for missions is the Good Samaritan. And, and he did indeed give the innkeeper money for the, for the man that he left there. But you'll notice he, he took out the oil and wine and he put it in the wounds. And he put him on his donkey. And he took care of him. You and I have to be, get our hands dirty. We have to work with people. You have to do something. Not just write a check. Checks are fine. I mean, giving is part of our life too. But it's not all. I can't simply give so someone else will do mission. However and wherever it is, I must get my hands dirty. I must serve people. I must be giving and serving. 
and letting the love of Christ come through my body, as it were, not simply my checkbook. Selfless giving, we joyfully give as the Lord leads us, and we pray over our gifts, asking God to use our gifts to reach people. We believe people will be saved, healed, and rescued because we have chosen to place our loaves and fish into Jesus' wonderful hands. Here's how I think about money. People often say, well, if we had more money, we could do more. My foot. You don't, you don't buy souls. I mean, not that I've ever seen. You, you, people win people. People win people to Christ. Money doesn't buy people to Christ. Money is actually not all that important in the work of God. You need some. Got to pay for a ticket to get on a plane. or you need. A, aren't we glad we have a roof? It's wet out there. We're glad we have a roof. But money doesn't build the kingdom of God. And the amount of money doesn't matter. When it is given in love, when you're dividing your bread with the poor, when you put it in the Lord's hands like the loaves and fish, and he blesses it, that money has a divine power to it to accomplish the work of God that goes way beyond its monetary value. I've lived it. I've seen it all my years. When people give out of love, they give out of faith. It doesn't matter the amount. It matters the heart that went into it. And that when, when you put it in Jesus' hands and say, Lord, would you feed the poor? Would you win the lost? He says, yes, I will. Yes, I will. And that money, it's simply got a, an anointing on it, if you want to say it. And that money is used powerfully. I've seen churches built. I've seen all kinds of things done with money. With, when there, just, there simply wasn't enough money. By the time we were done, there's all of this finished. Like, how did that happen? Because it wasn't just money. It was blessed money. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was put in Jesus' hands money. It was broken money that he fed the, the multitude with. Is that crazy? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Watch. I'm not making it up. I'm not being poetic. I've seen it. I've lived it. I, I, mean, I still believe it with all my heart. Selfless prayer. We regularly commit to disciplined intercession for those who step out to serve the Lord. We understand we are covering them as they minister. We understand their safety and fruitfulness depends in some measure on our faithfulness to pray. We recognize that such prayer is demanding and inconvenient, but we make it part of our lives because we are missionaries and it has to be done if we're going to plunder the strong man's property. You know what I mean by selfless prayer? There's prayers where I'm praying about my own issues. That's fine. I need to. It's perfectly normal. But there's prayers where I start praying for others. I start doing an act of service, of giving, of interceding for the needs of others. It doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm giving prayer away. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. Finally, response. For many years, the Antioch Church has served us as a model of how to do missions. We tried to reach out as a community like they did to train, send, support, pray, and hear and heal our missionaries. And we've had much fruit, but we're not done yet. And as we read these passages afresh, their example calls us again to selfless service, generous giving, and a deep commitment to prayer. And they also give us hope that we can reach our generation as effectively as they reach theirs. Aren't they a wonderful church? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. 
There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written. 